Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life. Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. We are on for the 16th time, 16th episode of the Know Their Story podcast. Uh, Just absolutely thrilled that we're going this far. We're starting to pick up a lot of followers as we go. So thank you so much for your support. I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. uh, that's already fifteen more than I thought we'd do. I was just gonna say you didn't believe when we were three in, so <laughs> I, I, I will maintain my incredulity throughout. And how is New Mexico for you today, Mister Sweet? Uh, New Mexico's windy. We're we're in our third season. We have winter, summer, and wind, and uh, we're in the midst of wind. And that lasts like two weeks, and then you're into winter. Well, it already snowed once, uh, but today I got to play with. Uh, my kids with a kite for a while and that was pretty uh i don't know i don't know when the last time you guys ran a kite was but uh it's pretty fun still i still like flying yeah i think i was your kid's age last time i ran a kite (laughs) uh they're a dollar at the convenience store and they're a good time for about 45 minutes go get it nothing is a dollar in seattle (laughs) i don't even think the tax on it would be more than a dollar uh Anyway, uh, we have a great episode today uh, joining us today. Also, we've left New Mexico and we're in our home, my home state of Washington, joining us from the Air Force. He was a canine handler with the U.S. Air Force, uh, deployed to Iraq twice and also Saudi Arabia twice. And we were just talking about, before we came on, the Spartan conditions of the Air Force in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but thank you for joining us today, uh, Tech Sergeant Tony Davis. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, fellas. So, um, Dustin, we always give the first question to. Oh, we, always, we always let me lead. Tony, yeah, we, uh, we got to get you in today. the groove early. <laughs> hey, um, uh, I guess uh, I guess I'll lead with our usual. Uh, which is how did you uh, how did you end up uh, being a part of the U.S. military? Uh, man, I never had any intention of it. It never even crossed my mind to do it. And uh, I was going to school and working, and then I was not doing well in school. And then I was working at a, uh, a factory molding plastic car parts for Honda, and I was working noon to midnight. Uh, two days on, three days off. So I couldn't even keep up a school schedule. And uh, I was at the house one day, my mom and dad's, and uh, they recruiter called for my little brother. And I answered the phone and I ended up talking to him. And I thought, well, what the hell? I'll go meet up with him and see what he's got for me. And that was it. It was, <laughs> it was just, <laughs> if I had never answered that phone, I probably never would have done it. Wow. Just the, eh. It's something to do today. I'll go join the military. <laughs> had you already yeah, made kind of what it was, man. I was just kind of what that. I say had had you already kind of made up your mind, or was the recruiter just that persuasive? Uh, I was just kind of floating, not doing anything really. I mean, I was just a little over twenty-one when I joined, so um, I was back at mom and dad's house. So 
wasn't really doing anything. I thought, well, I'll do this. Um, I mean, I gave the other recruiters a shot, except the Navy, because I'm afraid of the ocean. So I talked to the other three while I was there. And then uh, I, there was no way with the Marines. No way. And then the Army, they kind of talked to me a little bit. And I thought, well, maybe. And then I went back to the Air Force guy's office. They said, oh, this is the best deal for me. And so that's, that's how it happened. And then they're like, hey, if you go with us, we'll give you a dog. <laughs> Did you well, they showed me a video. And I saw the dogs in there and I thought, hey, can I do that? And he said, well, yeah, you can, but you have to do three years and be good while you're in and then apply for it and get accepted. And I said, okay, well, I'll just make sure I excel and try to do everything I can to get into that. And that's how it happened. Uh, cool. so that's a step up on my recruiting video when I joined custom. I mean, it was customs then customs and border protection. Now um, they show you this recruiting video and it's got guys on horseback and they're out on the speed boats and everything. It's like, man, I, I grew up going to horse camp. I'm like, I'm going to do horseback riding. It's awesome. So you join up, everything's great. And then after, you know, you're all signed up and at the Academy and they're like, Oh, well, the horseback is a specialized unit with the Native American trackers, and you have to be a member of that tribe to do the horseback stuff. I'm like, what? <laughs> Why is it in the recruiting video? <laughs> so, <laughs> but live and learn. It's awesome. Just to trick you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but so you, you did your three years, and, and as we mentioned in the opening, you did become a canine handler. Um, you know, for yeah. us, we talked the other day, I used to be the supervisor of our canine and obviously with customs, it's narcotics facing. What is the, the general role of the military? For those who don't know, a military working dog, what is their, what's your focus with them? Um, so it's basically the same um, as civilian police departments. You, you're a base cop and you're with your dog all the time. Um, the difference was we deployed. Um, but yeah, it was basically the same thing. You had either a bomb dog or a drug dog. Uh, they all did the aggression work. So looking for people in fields or buildings and biting somebody. Uh, so it's really absolutely what it is. Exactly the same. Do you have any, is there any time where you know, like on cops where people decide they want to fight the canine handler and it's like, dude, I've got a dog. Like any, any stories where you just really wondered um, what they were thinking when they went up against a dog? <laughs> there was one guy, um, I was at a, the only, there was only one base at the time that had dogs. So we went to the other bases to work in Colorado Springs too, because it's all pretty, pretty close together. And, uh, my dog jumped up on the, the semi to search it. And the guy had just waxed the, uh, the big silver things on the side of the semi. Had just waxed those things or got them polished or whatever they do with it. And this guy was so pissed off and kept coming at me and coming at me, yelling about, you got to pay for this truck. And, I was, and at the time, the dog I had was right around 100 pounds. He was a monster. I mean, luckily, the guy didn't know he was a big baby. The dog probably just would have let the guy pet him. <laughs> He's not the greatest of working dogs. Uh, but yeah, I thought, what an idiot. I would never approach that, that big of a dog 
and try to act like a hard ass. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you're not going to fight that dog. You're not going to win. Now, was it a shepherd? Or Yeah, uh, that was my only on-base one, stateside. Yeah, big giant shepherd. Uh, no, I would, uh, yeah. I would not fight a 100-pound shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would be wearing one of those red man suits. Like coming through the gates trying to pet them. And... What's that? So I'd, I'd fight a hundred pound German shepherd, but we got to put me in one of those red suits for uh, one of those practice suits. Oh yeah. Yeah. You don't even feel it really then. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Then it's, then it's just, you know, playing with a really yeah. aggressive kid with teeth. It's fine. Well, you don't feel the bite, but you yeah, feel it's the like tug of war with your arm. <laughs> I, I like it when the, when yeah. they start running in there. Yeah, you feel the hit coming at you for sure. Oh man. <laughs> So, so you're, you're working with your dog and then you do get deployed and what's, what's the workup for that once you get your orders and you know that you're going, did you go to Saudi Arabia first or Iraq? Um, I mean, you have an extra responsibility with uh, the dog with you. Saudi Arabia was my first. Oh yeah. Yeah. Huge responsibility. The dog is the sole responsibility. Um, so I went to Saudi Arabia first. Uh, but that was without a dog. I hadn't gone to canine school yet. Um, my first one with a dog was to Iraq and towards the beginning of 2004. Um, at the time, there weren't any, you go to regional training centers to build up for your deployment, but nobody knew what they were doing with these dogs after the war kicked off. Nobody knew what we were getting into really. And so the training reflected that. And so we were doing bare basic stuff that we do at home station. It wasn't, it wasn't anything crazy. Uh, it was hot and sandy because it was outside of Vegas, but it wasn't anything up. And then we got pulled four or five days early because our deployment got bumped up. Uh, we were, there were three of us leaving, but we were going to different places. And uh, we left and went back home. So we didn't even finish the initial training. We just left, went home for a couple of days and got another plane. Wow. And then um, you have to go back, go to the vet again, get the dog looked at again. You got to do all the normal paperwork out processing stuff. But then not even just the training, people didn't know how to travel with all these dogs at one time. So I got to uh, Dover, Delaware, and there were, if I remember, this is a long time ago, but if I remember, there were either 11 or 13 of us all there trying to get out of the States. It took three or four days to get us all out of there because the dogs require special travel. And then we got to Germany, finally, and we were there for, man, probably 10 days, 12 days, something like that. Um, and every day, trying to go get on a flight. You check out of the hotel, you go to the flight line, you wait around for 10, 12 hours, not go anywhere, go check into another hotel. And this happened, like I said, for almost two weeks. And then we finally got to Kuwait and they still didn't know how to get us all over there. <laughs> so a couple of people stayed in Kuwait and the rest of us were all going to Iraq. Uh, it took, I don't know, four or five, six days out of Kuwait. Um, it was almost a full month just of travel. Trying wow. to, just trying to get to Iraq in the first place. Do you think that was a, a kind yeah, of psychological not. trip on the part of the arm of the air force? So, by the time you finally got there, you're like, oh, thank God I'm here. 
yeah, you're almost relieved that you're in Iraq because it was just <laughs> travel with a dog is it's the only part of the job I didn't like was the travel. Uh, even stateside travel, you, if you can't check the dog underneath, the dog's got to sit in between your legs on the plane and you're not able to go to the bathroom. You can't fall asleep. You can't do any of this stuff. And so after all that travel, you get to Iraq and like, oh my God, give me this hot tent and a cot. Like, I don't even care. I just want to sleep and not have to get up real early. Just, you know, let me relax a little bit because I'm where I'm supposed to be now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough traveling with dog. I mean, airplane travel is pretty dangerous for dogs. My worst, absolute mm -hmm. worst day in customs, by far worst day is I had to go up and you always check the dogs that come in and it was a military flight. And so there's like 17 dogs. And I was warned that one of them maybe was sleeping. I was like, oh, no. And it was a it was a bulldog with their short snout, and it's really hard for them to breathe. Up and and, mm -hmm. and passed away. But I remember going up there, and I just like, come on, come on, wake up, wake up. So I had to yeah. call my supervisor up, and I was like, hey, you know, everyone cover your radios if you're next to a family. And then the family came up, and I just kind of had to stand there. Mm -hmm. oh, it was it was the worst experience. And then the airline started kind of being dicks about it, trying to say, oh, that's horrible. And my boss grabbed him and was like, have a little respect and you're going to have respect or you're going to have problems clearing your flights in this. It, that is the fun part of CBP. Like if you don't want problems, like, <laughs> Oh yeah. I was, I was, yeah. A lot of love for my supervisor that day. He read them the riot act. So, I think it's so weird that the, that the yeah, airport that's didn't a horrible like, thing. Yeah, no kidding. I, I think it's, I think it's weird that the Air Force didn't just have a, like, if they knew they were moving that many dogs all at once, like, just have a flight. I know. I well, know I think that part of it was it was such a culture shock to send that many dogs at one time because yeah. before when people deployed, it was ninety days or whatever it was at the time, and it was one dog here, two dogs there. It wasn't anything mass quantity, and uh, the I don't know if it's still the same. I assume it is, but the the regulations at the time, the dog took up his own pallet on the plane. And so the right. only thing that could be on that was the handler's gear and the dog, and that was it. So if you have, you know, 60 army guys, whatever that is, a, I don't know, platoon, I, hell, I don't know. But uh, you're going to get bumped because you're by yourself. It's just you and the dog. So if they have to get these 60 people over there, you're getting right. bumped every time because they can pack a ton of stuff on pallets in those planes. But yet, 11 or 13 dogs whatever it was and you're looking at a lot of space they're taking up on that plane so i think that was the biggest issue yeah but it's not like it was i mean they had working dogs in vietnam like they had 40 years to prepare <laughs> so yeah but i think it was a little different because I, if I remember, I don't think those dogs came back, did they? With their hands? No. They that, didn't pick up new handlers when they got there? I don't know. Yeah, remember. that was going to be my question. Because one of our guys for our documentary, Apache Blues Welcome Home, um, <laughs> he when he rotated back out, the dog stayed and got a new handler. And uh, it was so tough interviewing him because I could kind of sense, you know, you, when you just get a sense of something, I didn't want to ask it, but for the story, I had to. And I was oh, like, so what, what happened to Duke? And they missed a booby, the new handler missed a booby trap and they were killed. And, um, uh -huh. but yeah, and, and, you know, they weren't, 
classified as soldiers. Um, they were just property, so they were left. But yep. did your dog then stay with you and come back from your deployment with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You train with the same dog. Um, preferably, you're with that dog for a long time before you deploy anyway, um, so that you have that bond. Uh, you work well together. Uh, and then you go over there and you work, and then you do come home with the same dog. Uh, none of the dogs stay over there anymore. It's uh, If you were to do that, you would spend so much time just trying to trying to mesh with each other that most of your deployment would be over before you're actually operational. Right. True. Yeah. So all the training's done at home station, and then you deploy with that dog. Yeah. I mean, it is. It, it is a really. People think, oh, you know, I have dogs, and you just get a dog, but. I mean, we had one dog in customs. It was a good dog, like nothing against the dog, but it was male and it was alpha and it wouldn't work with a female handler. Um, mm -hmm. You know, not, not saying it just sat down as like, a, you know, no dough, no show, but it just was not as effective. Uh, so mm -hmm. they paired it up with a male handler and it was a great dog. So dogs are, they're smart. They know, you know, it is a bond. Yeah. Yep. They got their oh, personalities yeah, like people. They, What's How that? many dogs have you worked with over the years? Um, I had eight operational. Uh, I had two during canine school. You get one in the first part of the school and one in the second part. Mm -hmm. And then when you go to kennel master school, you get another dog too, just for training. Uh, but operational, I had eight. So, okay. so you have your dogs that you train with, but then do they match you with one of the dogs that you trained with? Just kind of see what's better or, or how do you get your final match then after school? Uh, yeah. When you get back to home station, generally at the time uh, you went back to wherever you went to school from. Uh, so you already knew most of the people in the kennels. You'd already been around because you used to have to do a lot to get to school. You had to go to the kennels and catch the dogs and, spray out kennels and clean kennels. You, you had to do all the bitch work that nobody wanted to do. Um, Cause it used to be a really tough process to get into it. And uh, so everybody kind of knew your personality. Um, the people that were already in the kennels already knew the dog's personality. So the goal was to try to mix those two together. Uh, sometimes it didn't happen. My first dog, we were together 10 months. I think 10 months, we were not a good team. Um, I mean, we functioned, but we weren't good. Um, and he ended up going to back to the trainers uh, to work on some issues he had. And I picked up another dog that was easier to work. Um, and then my skills from there. But yeah, so they try to match you up as well as they can when you first get back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the law of supply and demand. A whole bunch of people want to work canine compared to saying, you know, mortar crew. Um, so yeah, like I tell my daughters, no one's tired as <laughs> yeah. so you're you're gonna be cleaning out the kennels before you're <laughs> working with them. So Yeah, um, it wasn't fun. Like there's always so much dog shit you can mess around with, you know. <laughs> so yeah. Um Dustin, go ahead. Am I allowed to swear? Oh yeah. yeah. Um oh, okay. Well no, <laughs> yeah. Sir. <laughs> yeah, we can do whatever we want. I mean, if it, if it gets so far along, we can just click that. It's a, uh, um, uh, we have a button that we click when we upload that can say it's a more mature episode, which we're fine with. Yeah. 
we don't want to police anyone uh, language. With like I said, oh, okay, cool. with what it goes. So gotcha. So, so where, where did you end up? You said you, you trained in Colorado Springs a little bit. Did you end up? Um, did you end up there, or did you end up in Vegas when you were stateside? Uh, no, I uh, I got stationed in Colorado Springs right after basic and tech school, and then went to K nine school from there and came right back. Uh, Vegas was just at the time it was I want to say it was just a couple of weeks training course, um, and then I went back okay. to Colorado Springs and left from home station. Were you uh, allowed to enjoy Vegas, or did they keep you separated? <laughs> uh, no. Well, they didn't really monitor the dog handlers. We stayed um, in these trailers, and everybody else was in these dorms where they were monitored. Um, and we had to go every four hours and check on the dogs, and then you had to feed the dogs at whatever time in the morning. It was a little casino just outside the, the gate right there. And we did go to that once, but it was such a little small hole in the wall because you are way out in the middle of nowhere. You're so far from the strip. It's not, I don't even think it's even considered Las Vegas anymore. I think it's, can't remember the name of the place. Indian Springs, maybe something like that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, we went to that one casino that one night and the rest of the time, it's not even worth it. We'll just stay here. I have a, I have a general rule in life that the smaller the casino is, the sadder it is. Um, I've been to oh, very much so yeah yeah if you see a casino that's in a double wide trailer just don't no just don't, don't do yeah that's there's a my father's houseboat is on a reservation in eastern Washington and they have a, a very small casino and it's definitely like well the social security checks just came in and it's just sad <laughs> just pulling the arms and I'm like uh yeah, yeah I'll t- uh, I'll take the Bellagio where it's too expensive for me to gamble, and that keeps me honest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're not going to spend that much in there. I, I did accidentally bet like $125 on a hand of blackjack on their machines because I'm used to playing the smaller ones where the, you know you <laughs> press max and it's like 20 bucks. I'm like, oh, big spender. And I noticed I bet like, 100, like 125 or 200 bucks on my hand. And I was like, oh, crap. And I got a blackjack. And then it was just on. <laughs> I ended up winning like, I was up over a thousand dollars because I was there for a union convention. Called my wife. I'm like, I want a grand. I'm going to go see, oh, the, the Cirque du Soleil show. And, and she's like, but I want to go. I'm like, no problem. Blackjack's printing money. Yeah, I lost it all. <laughs> just went cold. So That's I, awesome. You should have let me go to, oh, no. <laughs> Uh, so well you just blame it on the wife yeah yeah well i had to call her i was smart i hadn't brought my credit cards um so i didn't i couldn't get a cab i had to do the walk of shame back to my hotel (laughs) so just lost all my cash so i would say i learned my lesson but i didn't so it's part of my Uh, you never do (laughs) so um but your assignment in saudi arabia um (laughs) You mentioned, like I said, the very Spartan Air Force conditions. Um, what was that like again? Uh, so when I went, it was actually my first and my last deployment to the exact same place in Saudi. Um, and both times it was the same. You're in these villas with five bedrooms and three bathrooms, and washer and dryer, living room, uh, kitchen. But uh, when I went as a kennel master in 2000. 11 
I had my own villa because it was the alternate kennels. And so nobody could live with me in case the dogs had to come over. And so I was in basically the mansion of Saudi Arabia. And, and thus concludes yeah, was, our uh, recruiting advertisement for the Air Force. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. If you want a good deployment to Saudi, join the Air Force. <laughs> so, um, so where were you in Iraq then? <laughs> Bumping forward for Iraq. Uh, the first time I was at a Talil Air Base. Uh, the name's changed. I don't know what it's called now. Um, it's just outside of Nazaria. That was where I was at first. Um, and those, there was a lot of army there. I remember that. Um, and the Italians and the Romanians were there. So it was a pretty different experience for me. I'd never worked with the other branches, let alone other countries. Um, and the army, we saw them basically during convoys because we searched gates. Um, and they would come in. And then we did do some stuff like heading towards Nazaria. Um, across that bridge it's in that uh that show generation kill i don't know if you guys have ever seen that but yeah the yeah, bridge yeah. are trying to cross into nazaria yeah yeah so we did some stuff uh across that bridge um but that was with uh the italians and the romanians we didn't do anything with the army um so that was a uh, it was definitely an entirely different experience than what i was used to it wasn't you know your home station searching cars and and flirting with girls at the gate you know what i mean it wasn't you know it wasn't anything like that it was oh my god i'm out here digging a hole for this lpop however many meters outside the gate and now i'm up here uh, on this bridge um and so i didn't really know what what was going to happen on that one because it was a pretty quiet place at the time uh we got hit i think one big time and i think maybe just a few small times nothing crazy uh, the big one was pretty good, but it was so far out that it didn't affect Tent City. Uh, now, that Air Force deployment was horrible. Limited tent, uh, uh, tent bathrooms. We still didn't have the Cadillacs. We had the tent bathrooms. We had the the canvas bag with the spigots on it to the kind of shave, but came home with, you know, full goatee. Everybody just kind of stopped shaving while we were there um the other air force cops had a little rougher than i did because they got you know looked at a lot more than we did but um we took advantage of being the only dog handlers there and uh as long as you showed up with your guns and your dog like nobody really cared yeah. so that was also my first experience with the benefits of being a dog handler back then yeah and you know when you talk about the gate i know one of our veterans, his daughter, um, was stationed in the Middle East and had made friends with some of the kids outside the gate. And the gate got hit after she had left. And unfortunately, um, those children did mm -hmm. not survive it. But it is, you know, the what is it like for, for people who haven't been there? I mean, gate security is a pretty hairy environment at points. Um, what is, what is that mindset like as you're working the gates and, and just not knowing what's coming? Um, in the beginning, it's, it's, uh, pretty overwhelming. Um, especially back in 2004 when everything was still fairly new. Um, 
you never knew what was coming through there because it wasn't just the convoys. It was deliveries for the chow hall or the little mini store that was there, or even some of the, the locals that worked on base. And so it was a little overwhelming because you really didn't know what you were getting into. Because, yeah, your dog's uh, going to find that bomb because you trust your dog. But what if it goes off before you even get to it, you know? Right. Um, so, but after, I don't I mean, I don't know how much time it takes, but after a little bit of time, you kind of get really complacent, which is, is bad, but it's just the nature of the beast. Like you're searching hundreds of cars a day. You're going to get pretty complacent. Um, and so it was weird to stop worrying about it. Um, when I first started doing it, I was, you know, worried, like my son is four now um, at the time. Like, what if I don't make it home and he grows up without a dad and you, you think all this stuff and then um, you, uh, you know, a couple months in or whatever, you stop thinking about that. It, that that was the part that that worried me more than anything else was that I stopped thinking about it. Mm. And so you got to really get in that mindset. I have to take every day like very serious instead of half-assing it just because I've seen this guy, you know, 45 times in the last 20 days. But you never know, like they could be building up that rapport. Um, it breaks down your trust in humanity a lot. You don't... Uh, you know, you see this guy cooking your, your omelet at the chow hall or whatever, or packing up your to-go plate, but he might be the guy that blows you up. You know, you, you kind of lose your trust in people for sure. Uh, that was my biggest takeaway of working the gates. The gates are a very easy target because they're right there. They're the first thing you see. Um, it's absolutely the easiest target. I mean, you look at the times that a gate got hit compared to, I don't know, like a insider attack somewhere inside the installation. I don't know for sure, but I'd have to guess the gate hits are a lot more. It's easy. Yeah. And it's like do a, uh, being an active shooter in a gun free zone. Yeah. In theory, nobody has a gun there. So you do whatever you want. Yeah, I mean, definitely the softest target, I think, on the base. Well, and not only is it easy and it's there, but people are actually allowed to approach it. It's not like, you know, if you're driving a car at high speed across the desert at a random section of the fence, you're probably going to get taken out before you get mm -hmm. 100 yards of it. But you're actually allowed to drive up to right. the gate. And, you know, you don't even have to make contact. Like, that was our thing with customs is someone may try to bring something in, but you don't have to wait to customs to detonate it. Like you could detonate it right in Puget Sound in Seattle and it actually have a bigger psychological effect. Um, hypothetically, in case anyone's listening, like don't do that, please. But no, yeah, you're allowed to drive up and, and you never know. Um, when you're talking about losing that faith in humanity, did that, stay with you when you came home like does does that still kind of inform your interactions with people or, or did it take some time to kind of decompress uh, yeah it, it definitely stuck with me for a long time um i don't think it ever truly went away um mm -hmm. 
And then definitely after my next appointment in 2008, it's still with me now. Um, but yeah, that deployment in 04, uh, I mean, I grew up small town, Southern Ohio. Everybody knew everybody. Um, I think I'm related to like a quarter of the town. Um, so you didn't worry about like your own safety or not trusting somebody. And then, so that definitely changed me as a person for sure. I was not the same person when I came home. And in hindsight, in 2004, I wasn't doing anything near as dangerous as what I thought it was at the time. Uh, it wasn't like I was, you know, war hero in 2004. Just at the time, it was something very new, um, still dangerous. But I'd never done anything like that. So it was, it was a lot to take in. Um, but like I said, hindsight, it really wasn't that, that bad. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely lost that trust in humanity um, for a long time. And if it ever went away, it didn't completely go away. Um, but I did get better for a while. Um, I was kind of back to normal. I was hanging out with my friends still, um, still able to go to baseball stadiums or packed concert halls or whatever else. So 2004 wasn't um, horrible. It wasn't great. You know, I was away from my son, uh, the ex-wife and I split up right before I left. Um, it wasn't a surprise. We knew it was happening. Um, but uh, I came home and everything was different. Um, my personality was different. Um, the way I looked at the outside world was different. My home life was different. Uh, so it was a lot to come home to that. Um, but like I said, that one, I got over that for the most part. And then you went back in 2008. Uh, going back, you know, you talked about kind of getting, comp not, well, complacent as you went. What was it like to go back and kind of ramp back up into that? Um, like, what is your thought process? You've come home, you've kind of gotten back to being home, sent back. Um, what was that, that, you know, a lot of our guys in the movie talk about, you know, you can't just keep flipping switches. What was that like for you? Um, 2008, I went into it thinking, been there, done that. Um, it'll just be a little bit of a different mission, but whatever, I'll be okay. I'll just go to work every day and come home and, and be fine. Um, and for that one, I went down to Yuma, Arizona for training. They started a canine school that Marines did, and it was just all dog handlers, no, no base cops, no, no services for the chow hall, none of that stuff. It was just canine out in the middle of nowhere, Yuma, Arizona. Um, Wow. And you truly believed when you were there that you were in Iraq somewhere because it was set up very well. Um, the best training I've ever had, but extremely physically and mentally and emotionally draining for that training. Um, the gunny came in the classroom the first day and told us, you're off on the weekend. I suggest you go get some beers. You're going to want it. And then I thought, what the hell am I getting into now? <laughs> you know, when they come in and tell you, go get a couple of beers. Like, oh, so this can't be good. Um, but like I said, the best training, I was 100% prepared after that, but even going back to Colorado Springs before I actually deployed for 
I think I was home like a week, maybe week and a half. Um, I was still going into the deployment with the same mindset, you know, been there, done that. And then I got to, um, I went to Balad Air Base. I think it was called Anaconda at the time, or maybe it was Anaconda after, one of the two, I can't remember. Um, and I got there and the, the K-9 liaison picked me up and he said, hey, uh, we don't know what we're going to do with you yet. We don't know where you're going. And I thought, but I'm here, like, is this where I'm staying? He said, no, we don't know where you're going to go. So he put me in a temporary kennel or a temporary housing area for the kennel. And uh, no kidding, man, the first night I wake up and I hear a loud boom, shook the room, and then I hear debris hitting the roof. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a hell of a trip. This is the first night. <laughs> so um, I, I got the dog. I calmed him down because he was, you know, it messed with him a little bit, too. So calmed him down and we stepped outside looked around people were taken care of because it hit pretty close but there were people over there i didn't know the base i didn't know the people so i just stayed where i was at in the in the room instead of getting in the way um and then uh my buddy was there from my same home station uh he was getting ready to leave and so he came over and he said hey you good and i said yeah i'm all right but what the hell he said i'll do this all the time oh my god this all the time so um, the next day I got up and I went on, uh, I went up to uh, this place called Spiker to in process with the army because I was deployed with the army that time. And I got up there and they said, well, we don't know what we're going to do. So you're here for a couple of days. And so I just kind of hung out and didn't do anything. And I thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe this is picking up a little bit. Just kind of hanging out, playing PlayStation, you know, not really doing anything. And then they said, well, you can go back, uh, to where you originally flew in and relieve your friend since you guys are from the same home station. Okay. So I get back and I check into, I'm not check into, but move into um, an actual chew in the kennel area. And then the next morning went up and got my, uh, my ACUs, my army uniform. And I thought, well, this is a little strange picking up an army uniform, but it is what, what they want me to wear. All right. I, mean, I still didn't really understand what I was doing. And so I got to the kennels and I met the, the kennel master. He said, explain to me everything that we do. We run these missions. We do this, we do that. Okay. So then we start running missions. And um, that's when I realized that it wasn't been there, done that anymore. Um, we were going out to these villages. We were kicking in doors. We were chasing people. There were fights. It was like to the far extreme of what I expected. I expected something that I'd already done and it was just up here. Um, I was absolutely not in that mindset when I first got there. But after the first night you go out and you realize what's happening, you have no choice but to get into that mindset. You, you have to, or you're not gonna make it. Um, something bad is gonna happen, whether it's breaking your leg and going home because you did something stupid because you just weren't prepared. So you got to really prepare for that. Um, luckily, I was all right the first night or the first mission because, I, like I said, I wasn't prepared for what was happening. Um, but that's the trip that really got to me. Um, I didn't, I didn't expect all the stuff that was going to happen on that trip because um, I didn't know what these villages were like. Um, I hadn't really 
uh, talk to any of the other army guys that I was going out with to see what they dealt with. The other handlers would say, yeah, this happened once, this happened once, but it, it sounded like it was really few and far between. Um, I didn't realize how often it was going to happen on these trips. Uh, but yeah, that was the one that, I mean, I was well prepared, uh, thanks to the Marines in that school for what we were going to do. I just didn't expect that we were going to be doing it. So I had to really get my head in the game, um, after the first trip. So how often yeah, were that you? might be a long winded. Oh, no, no, the question, but no, we're totally hanging on that. I mean, how often were you going out doing that? Like once a week, every, every day. Um, um, we rotated, uh, there was a standard mission once a week. Um, and we just took turns doing that one. It was a meeting with the sheiks or how you say the sheiks, sheiks, whatever. Um, and the other locals and then the military. And we had to escort on that mission too. So we would go search where they were doing the, um, doing the meeting every week. So we rotated that one. Um, but we had a, just a rotation. If it was your turn to go, it was your turn to go. And if they were 10 missions that week, you might go out five times in that week. Um, but if somebody went to another FOB somewhere, that took one handler out of the rotation because sometimes we would go to another FOB for a few days at a time. So the people at the, you know, the main place we were at, their rotations picked up too because now you were gone for three, four, five days. Whatever right. So there, there were times you went out uh, six, seven times in a week sometimes. Wow. Some weeks you didn't do anything. Some weeks you were in your in the in your your chew and you didn't do anything because we didn't work on base we didn't we didn't search cars on base the only thing that we did on base was training and exercise the dogs that was it we kept the dogs on the explosive odor and we did you know the aggression training and exercise the dogs take them from walks that was it we didn't do anything on base um it was all outside work on that trip so and did you find yourself getting into a, a rhythm when you started going out in terms of, like you said, with, when you're checking the gate, you kind of get into a been there, done that, or was it uh, a ramp up every time you went out? Yeah, it was a ramp up every time because you didn't, um, you're in, uh, how do I say that? You're in the, you're in their area now. This isn't like working the gate where you're kind of in your own zone you have no idea what's out there or what you might step on or what might come flying into you. Uh, so every day was something new. It, there was no, there was no complacency. There wasn't any, um, oh, okay, well, I've done this one. This is okay. This village is fine. Cause you never knew, you never knew who was in that village. Um, you never know who had left. You worried when you saw that some of the locals were gone because maybe they knew something ahead of time. Like you, you had no idea what was going to happen when you went into those villages. Um, yeah. So there was no, no getting ready for that every day. It was definitely new every single time you drove out that gate. Every time you heard that test fire, when you got out the gate, you really had to, to, uh, how'd you say it? Ramp yourself up to be ready for anything that was going to happen. Um, whether it was in the vehicle before you got to the village or it was in the village or on the 
way home. You had no idea, but the whole time you're just a mile a minute racing in your head, um, and drilling through the roof. And then you get back and just crash, uh, once you're back on base. It was, that was the weirdest sensation was the, the crashing when you get back. That was the only thing that I was prepared for every time. Was the crash. But then yeah. you still... Yeah, that was the only thing. Did the okay. rocket attacks keep up for through your whole deployment on the base? I mean, that's got to kind of keep you... Oh, my God. ...go to sleep. Yeah. All the time. That place, uh, they called it Mortaritaville. It was just all night mortars. And except for during, uh, like, Ramadan or... What was it called? The Arab Spring or whatever. When they just feel like shooting mortars at you. Um, yeah, the the attacks. None of them got that close after that. Um, while I was there, anyway, that was definitely the closest one. That was an RPG that came in. The rest of them, the perimeter was so far out that nothing came in close, anyway. Did that yeah, constant? I mean, you heard it all night, and then you hear the. Uh, the C RAM or whatever it is that shoots the mortars down. Oh, you yeah. Hear that like all through the night. Wow. Yeah. So, do you need uh, white noise when you sleep? To now? the point where you just sleep through it. Yeah. I mean, is it is it weird then for you to have just silence? No. Or... Mm, no, not really. Um, but I think part of that too is um, the house I grew up in in Ohio, there were train tracks behind the yard. And so, like, I was a kid sleeping through trains, you know, window shaking. And so right. I think that it was a different noise when I got there, but it didn't take me long to get used to sleeping through that. Uh, and now that I'm back here or back home, um, I slept okay minus, like, the nightmares and, and the waking up and that kind of stuff. But as far as having noise in the background... I didn't really need that too much to sleep. And how long was your deployment? Was that a year deployment, six months? How long were you over? Um, that one, counting the training, I left in February, very beginning of February. And I came home either October or November. So close to a year. Um, oh, you know, it was November because I was only actually home uh, January and December of that year. Yeah. And so 10 months, give or take a few days. So all those months of going out and just being on edge and, and having to be aware, what was that like for you to come home then? I mean, that's not an easy thing to, uh, to be on edge for that whole time and then to come home. What was that transition like for you? Um, you're right. It definitely wasn't easy. Um, I came home and, uh, you know, I lived, uh, by myself. And so I came home and you get into your apartment and you, you look around and like nothing's happening and you feel like you can relax, but you don't. Um, cause you, you are having those nightmares. You, you feel like you're constantly on the go. Um, you're in that almost constant crash cycle where your adrenaline is so low now, like you were used to these highs all the time and now you're just so low. That's the way it was for me anyway. I just, it was tough. 
Um, I didn't talk to a lot of people because everybody had that mindset. Um, and I did too, that you, you don't talk about it. You don't talk about it. The shit goes away. Um, you have a couple of beers, it goes away. Um, so I definitely came back to that. Didn't want to talk to anybody about it. Um, went to work like nothing ever happened. Um, even during my time off, when I first came home before I went back to work, I didn't, didn't really talk about it. Um, I was talking to some friends the other day. So, you know, when I talked to you guys the other day about this, I, I got off the phone. I was really shaky. And, uh, and I think the biggest reason that happened was because I, I don't sit and talk about this stuff. Still to this day, I don't. Uh, I tell the funny stories. Um, I, uh, I might make a comment here and there, uh, but that's it. I don't sit and talk like we're doing now. Um, and so I started drinking a lot. Um, not like dangerous drinking. I wasn't driving around town. I wasn't doing anything like that. But if somebody wanted to go get beers, I was definitely going to get beers. And if it kept me out later than it should have, because I had to work a day shift the next morning, it kept me out later than I should have. Um, I went to work hungover a lot. But that was the stuff that, that was the way I dealt with it. I, I think that's the way most everybody dealt with it, even as recent as then. Um, and probably still now, a lot of people do. Uh, and when I came back to work, people noticed a change in me. Um, I, I tried to, to hide it as much as I could, but it was hard because I couldn't, I couldn't see what they were seeing, uh, what the changes right. were. I just thought that I was hiding it really well the whole time. Uh, hindsight, I definitely was not. Uh, and so a couple of the guys in the kennels, uh, that kennels that we had at the time, I mean, I still talk to those guys. Those guys are still very much family to me. Um, so they, uh, they talked me into going to the mental health and, uh, the clinic and it helped, man. It, it was, it really helped a lot. Um, I was able to sleep again for the most part. I wasn't drinking like I was, um, I was just kind of cruising along before that. I, uh, I went to work, but it wasn't that I cared about the work anymore. Like I cared about the dog, but I was definitely going through the motions. Um, the end result was going to work because at the time, um, I had built up my skills as a dog handler to where I was very good at what I did. Um, not to sound like a braggart, but I was very good at what I did, um, at the time. And so I knew the end result was going to be okay. Um, you might have some setbacks here and there, but they're living creatures. It's not like I'm working a robot. You can play that stuff off. Um, and so I, I just didn't care. And then, uh, like I said, those guys talking me into to going to see somebody, man, that was life-changing for me. Not life-saving. I never... I never thought about like hurting myself or hurting anybody else and all that. I mean, ultimately I was with the, the booze and the, the complacency and not caring about where I floated to in life. The only concern was, you know, when can I take leave and take my son back home to Ohio? And that was it. That's all I cared about. Um, but yeah, those guys, uh, they helped me out a lot. And that was the only thing that made coming home a little easier. But that was probably, man, five or six months 
after being home, if not a little more, um, before I went, if I remember right, it was a long time where I real I spent a lot of money on alcohol, um, go out to restaurants because I didn't want to cook, I didn't want to be by myself, but I also didn't want to be in a restaurant full of people. Um, still to this day, I sit with my back to the door if I can, and if I don't, I need to have whoever is facing the door. I have to trust them 100% with my life. Um, and luckily, I have some people out here since I just moved out here not too long ago um, that I've known for years that I do trust to, to look at that doorway for me. But uh, for the most part, I'm still that person not trusting people, um, looking at the doorway. Uh, but yeah, coming home after that, man, you, you see these things and you do these things and you never think growing up. I mean, even when you're in the military, you don't really think this is what I'm going to go do. I'm going to go fight these people. I'm going to go do this. You don't think that stuff. Um, I mean, I have to assume even, even people coming in now or within the last five years don't think, well, I'm going to go to Iraq or Afghanistan and get in all these firefights. I just don't see, I don't understand if people do think that way because it's few and far between that something happens when you deploy. You might go to a place where nothing happens ever. You know, like when I went to Saudi Arabia, nothing happened over there. You may get that for, you know, a couple of deployments in a row. But yeah, coming home after that 2008 trip um, still gets to me um, a lot when I think about it and when I talk about it. Um, well, luckily I got, you know, a lot of a family and friends that that helped me out. They, they look out for me. Um, I got a group of guys who know when something's going to get to me and they'll pull me off to the side. And so I'm in a very fortunate situation for that. That's good yeah. To hear. Um, and that's, you know, we've talked to a lot of veterans who've said, you know, reach out to your buddies. Like, you know, you're still, you're still there for mm -hmm. each other. Um, and, and we've been to, especially during this lockdown and quarantine, you know, reach out and check in. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tony, did you notice, uh, did you notice your relationship with your dog changing while you were, while you were running missions? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, we were already a really solid dog team, uh, before I left, but, um, even during the training when we were gone together, uh, it was just that much better. Um, doing those things together, um, build up our trust, each other 100%. Um, little things like, I'll never forget it, we were in training and his temperature went through the roof because there's, it's a Marine class. Right. There's no, I mean, there's safety guidelines, but you're not picking up spent brass so nobody trips. That's on the ground because that's what it's like over there. So. Uh, he got real hot. I carried him back to the kennels, um, took his temperature. He was well above what he should have been. And so I laid him down on some ice on the floor and uh, put an IV in between his shoulder blades and squeezed the bag in and pressed the hump to to cool him down. And after that, a dog, any time he got hot, he'd walk over with his head down waiting for me to put an IV between his shoulder blades. So, um, and it, it didn't matter as long as him and I were together. He didn't care what I did. Um, I took him to the vet to draw blood. 
uh, I held his leg out, shaved his leg, hit the hit the vein. He didn't we didn't have to put him down for it. He just he let me put the IV in to get the blood. He, the dog just awesome. our bond was so good that uh, 100% trust between me and him, starting in that training that we went through before we deployed. Uh, it just got that if we were at a 10, we got to a 20. Wow. Did you notice a big change in him as well when you got when when you came back to the states? Did you did you notice him uh, having a change as well? Yeah, um, he didn't. He was a very friendly dog um, before we left, and to a certain extent, when we got home, he still was. Um, but little things like he didn't. Um, when we got home, we got split up. I moved into a trainer position in the kennels, and he went to another handler. Um, but before that, when we got home, he went to the vet and I was, I think I was in processing or something. So another handler took him to the vet and they, they put him down and took a, you know, temperature, cleaned his teeth, did all this other stuff. And when we got back, when they got back on base, he was coming to, and he was, like I said, he was a crazy friendly dog, but he was growling at every handler, these people that he had known for a long time. And he wouldn't let anybody come get him out of the car except me. I had to come out and pick him up out of the yeah. car and carry him into his kennel and sit him in there because he just he wouldn't let the other handlers touch him and he was never like that um so yeah big change in him he didn't trust other people um and and maybe it was only when he was under anesthetic and didn't really realize who they were or whatever but uh that was one the first time i thought man it changed him too changed him a lot so yeah it seems like we do yeah 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 Um, so he got, was there a, a bonding issue going to the new trainer or, or did, did they, did he take to that? Oh yeah. Big time. Yeah. They did not work well together. Um, if I was in the general vicinity, so I couldn't take that handler out with that dog to do training. Cause he just, he wouldn't, he didn't want anything to do with that guy. If I was around, I was it. He, he wouldn't, he would bypass explosives he wouldn't bite people he just he wouldn't work wouldn't even do basic obedience when he was if i was around so i had to stay away um it always sucks when you get split up um because we were together two and a half years it was a long long time and almost a year of that was in the desert so um not counting all the the secret service missions in the states with you know you're in a hotel room together for days and you know sharing your food with them you know so we were together for a long time, uh, and the bond was just amazing. And so, yeah, he wouldn't, I had to stay away. He wouldn't work for that guy for a long time. They ended up being a pretty good dog team, though. Um, I mean, he still, if he saw me, he came running, and it, he wouldn't even sit or down or anything for the other handler. But um, I made sure I stayed away when they were working, like actually working. Um, I didn't do as much training with that team in particular because of that stuff. But yeah, he, uh, he didn't really like that guy at first. I mean, he probably liked him, but he didn't love him like he did me. So. Is he, is he still working? No, oh man. There you'll make me cry on this one. No. Um, oh man, I'm sorry. You're mad. He went on a, <laughs> no, that's cool, man. Nah. <laughs> his, his urn's up there. We watch TV together still. Um, nah, he uh, he died on his last deployment with that guy. 
uh, cancer got him. Um, the handler woke up and he, the dog was staring at him and wouldn't respond. So he rushed him to the vet and, uh, oh, give me a second. Take all the time you need. Um, he rushed him to the vet and the vet couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So they met him back into Germany and, uh, they opened him up, did exploratory surgery, and he just never woke up. That's a tough part. Um, dogs, man. That's the hard part about dogs. Yeah. Man, that was hard. Uh, and I was going to adopt him after he came home. He was going to come home with me after that because that was it for him. He was done working. Yeah. Almost made it to the house. Close, man. That's close. I did help my mom. But like I said, his earnings here. We watch TV. Hell, I still talk to him all the time. Yeah, of course. Of course. Heck, heck yeah. I I had to help my mom through her dog getting cancer a couple of years ago, and um, she yeah, I kind of had to be the decision maker, and that sucked. <laughs> um. So. Yeah. Yeah, I tell people I'm only here because of that dog. That is the only reason I'm sitting here. Have you had any dogs, other dogs? One time in particular, I know for a fact what that Oh no, go ahead. As I say, one time in particular, I know for a fact that that dog saved my life and I'm only here because of him. The other times, yeah, he probably did. But I know for sure one time I'm only here because of him. An alert or uh yeah, so that hit pretty tough. Yeah. Uh we have been chasing some guys for a while through uh, a couple of villages. And uh we finally get to this house and we split up to hit the, the gates on either side of the house, um, around the yard. And uh we get inside, we find the guy that we're looking for. He had been hiding in there with the family, pretend like he was a family member. And we went to search the house and uh, start to go up the stairs to the roof. And he just stops dead in his tracks. And he's staring. I was like, what the hell was that on the stairs? It was a grenade that that guy had set on the stairs. Um, I had no, I, I, I never would have seen it. Never would I have seen that thing. I would have kicked it, stepped right on it. Um, but yeah, he stopped about halfway up. He found it. You get a little extra dinner that night. Yep. What was hey, your? Dog- he got a lot of loving that night for sure. What was your dog's name? What's that? What was his name? Io. Well, here's Io was his name. Well, here's the Io, a, a a veteran of the United States military. So. Yep. I appreciate uh, that. Yeah. Um, I'll switch. I'll, I'll be the one to switch gears. Um, your friends got you to go. You, the, the, you said your friends got you to go talk. Um, were you mm-hmm. kind of like, okay, I'll go do it just to kind of get them off your back? Or were you open to the thought from the get-go? Or what was that? For, for veterans listening who are a, maybe a little reluctant to go talk, what was your experience like to, to, to let them know it's, it's, it's okay. 
Um, you know, I kind of knew that I should. Um, on that particular trip, I had a friend who was deployed at the same time to the same place. Um, so after missions, I would go out to where she worked and just hang out for a little bit, take the dog out there and hang out for a little bit. And it was nice just to come back and decompress with somebody that, you know, I mean, she's family to me. So it was nice to come back and decompress with somebody that you trusted like that. Um, I didn't ever tell her all the stuff that happened. Hell, she'll probably hear this now, but I didn't tell her all the stuff that, that happened on those trips. Um, she probably knew something happened, but, um, when I got home and I wasn't talking to people and everybody was telling me I should, I thought, you know what, they're probably right because I felt better about the things that happened after I talked to somebody. I mean, granted it was immediately after um, and you're on that adrenaline low. And so you're, you're just kind of winding down and just kind of crashing. Um, but it felt better to talk to somebody. So I was reluctant to do it on my own just because the, the stigma um, it was attached to it. And, and now I know that that stigma isn't as prevalent as I thought that it was. Um, so I was reluctant to go do it because of that. And when everybody kept telling me, do you just go, just go, just go. I thought, yeah, yeah, you're right. If it did feel better to talk to somebody, so I'll go now. And man, I wish I had done it sooner. Uh, Still to this day, I tell my friends, if you gotta go, go. Just who cares what other people think? You gotta look out for yourself. Um, I mean, and ultimately you're looking out for everybody else that you're around. Um, but yeah, so I was very reluctant. And then um, it wasn't just to shut them up. It was, I really just thought, yeah, okay, I'll go now, you guys are right. Um, between those guys, um, my ex-wife, um, her, her and I are still friends. We're not, we don't hate each other. None of that crazy divorce stuff. Um, so I would talk to her and she's like, ah, man, you should go see somebody. She told me that a few times. I don't know if she remembers it, but, um, between that group of people who, you know, I trusted 100%, I thought, okay, I'll go. And like I said, I'm so glad that I did. Uh, best decision I made in a lot of years for sure. So what would you say to any veteran who's listening, who's at that point, who thinks there's a stigma or is worried about the stigma? What advice would you give them? Uh, there isn't. That stigma is not there. If that stigma is there, then those people that, that think less of you were not your friends or your teammates in the first place. Um, the people that I consider family, those people that were in the kennels, and I'm a friend who are outside of the kennels that are family to me, um, those people genuinely cared. They didn't care that I wasn't allowed to arm up for a long time, um, a few months, whatever it was. Um, I actually missed another deployment shortly after I came home because I was still seeing mental health and they were me off to go. Uh, I felt terrible at the time because, you know, one of the other guys had to go. And he's, he's a brother to me, but it, it would have been more dangerous for me to go in the mindset that I was in. Um, than to than to not go it just would have been horrible for me to go to that uh not just for me but for everybody around me when i was deployed i wouldn't have been i wouldn't have been a good teammate to anybody that i was with over there um i wouldn't have been a good handler i don't think um i probably wouldn't have um 
taken as much care of the dog as I did or might not have even trusted the dog as much as I did. Um, I don't know. I had a lot of emotions and a lot of, um, a lot of mental blockers in there that, uh, that stigma is, um, that, that would have happened if I didn't go. So that stigma shouldn't be there. Uh, if you're having trouble, go. No matter how minor you think it is, it's truly not minor. Um, it was just 12 years later and I still deal with it sometimes. Um, it's never going to go away, but all you, you can make it better. Um, you can take yourself out of situations. You can, you learn how to do that when you go to mental health. You, you learn how to talk about things a lot better instead of trying to hide things. Um, I mean, I know I said in the beginning that I don't talk about this stuff much, but um, in all honesty, it just doesn't come up much. Nobody says, hey, Tony, you remember that time they almost got blown up? Like, nobody talks about that, you know? So um, it just doesn't come up that much. I mean, I'm still a little, like I said, you guys are the first people that I've really talked to like talk to, talk to uh, about some of these stories, but, um, and I was reluctant to do it today, but I thought, well, if it makes one person decide it's a, a good idea to go, then it's well worth it. Um, but yeah, it's never going to go away, but you can, you can take care of yourself a lot better if you go. Very important that people go. Perfectly said. And, um, that's a lot, you know, we, we've, had parts of the movie where we're like, oh, this is pretty intense. Do we put it in? And, you know, our advisors have said, if it helps one person, it's worth it. If it helps one person do it. So we did. Yeah. So, yeah, I've had other friends go and they, if they, they think the same thing. I've never known anybody to go and regret it. Hmm. I mean, once I was cleared, I went right back to work nothing changed you know i just i didn't carry a gun for a little bit and in all honesty i had a better schedule for a little while well, it was monday through friday 7 30 to 4 30 you know? so nothing changed i just like my work was kind of put on hold for a little bit if that's the worst thing that happens to you it's way better than what the alternative could be if you don't yeah, know. exactly dustin i i've asked a ton in a row what you got no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, how much, um, how much, how much of your current life, like day-to-day -day stuff do you, uh, how much do you think about your military history? How much, how much do you think about, I mean, are you still working with dogs right now or are you, what are you doing? What are you doing now? No, uh, no, I've been out of the canine world for uh, I left the kennels finally in 2012. Um, so I've been out of the canine world for a while. Um, I do, I'm a security manager for a, a company now. Um, I don't even know if I should be saying it, but this company you can order stuff from. They just had a big sale the last couple of days. And, it's, a, uh, it's a pretty prime job. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they do a real prime job. Um, I mean, I'm probably on a lot of things. Who the hell am I? Uh, whatever. Uh, I'm a security manager. Um, so, uh, some of my friends, um, who I was active duty with in Colorado are out here too. So our military time does come up a lot. Um, we're hanging out cause we tell funny stories and, you know, not deployment stuff per se, but just anything from our time in Colorado Springs in general. So our time there does come up quite a bit cause, um, 
I've known the ones that are out here, it's been 22 years, 20 years, coming up on 15 years and 12 or 13 years. So I've known these people for a long, long time. Uh, so uh, I do think about it still. Uh, as far as the, the stuff on the deployments, thinking about it, um, man, where I'm at in, in Eastern Oregon, uh, it's, you get that haze in the sky and it's like you're in Iraq again. Um, I still get the smells where it just turns you right back into it again. Um, yeah, so I, I do still think about it. It doesn't affect me um, as much as it used to because uh, I'm able to keep my, my mind on other things, especially when I'm at work or with somebody else. Um, so it doesn't affect me like it used to, but yeah, I will. I still think about the fun stuff a lot more than I think about the shitty stuff. Right. Um, you know, I still have the nightmares sometimes. Uh, wake up and your heart's pounding and you don't go back to sleep for another couple hours. You're crazy tired when you go to work. And that does still happen, but not near as much as it used to. Um, but yeah, that's been, I think that's it's a, a well, I'm in a pretty that. fortunate situation where, what's that? That's been kind of a common thread of guys we talk to is that, you know, it doesn't go away, but it's way less. And, uh, and that. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm pretty lucky to where now I think about um, the fun stuff more than I do the bad stuff. Um, you know, I'll make jokes with people throughout the day and you meet all these people who are prior service and, and you, you talk about, you know, like we talked about earlier, oh, the Air Force got these great benefits and, yeah, we did. Yeah, I'm proud of that. <laughs> Why would I ever say, oh, yeah, it was horrible. I should have been in the Army. No. You chose you know, right. You're proud. <laughs> yeah. What's the, what's the stereotype? The best food and the best deployments and the prettiest girls? All that's true. <laughs> that's absolutely accurate. So why would I ever say, oh, I should have been in the Marines? Never will you hear me say something like that. Um, but, yeah, so I, I'm lucky because I think about the fun stuff. Um, when I'm talking to those people as opposed to, you know, the stuff that keeps me up at night sometimes or the stuff that wakes me up. I don't, I don't dwell on that stuff as much anymore. When we talk about the fun times and, and we talk about black humor of, of military and, and even law enforcement, you ever get caught telling jokes or, or saying something and realizing that you're talking to civilians and they're kind of like, that's uh, a bit messed up. <laughs> all the time <laughs> um especially being a dog handler because i tell you there's nothing more funny than a dog shit joke like actual dog shit not just figuratively literal dog shit in somebody's shoe or on the phone something there's nothing more funny than seeing somebody be like, oh my god now i got shit all over me <laughs> Oh, you got me. You tell that story to some people, and they're like, what the hell's wrong with you? Nothing. I, I, it happens a lot when I go back home to Ohio and see my family. They're like, what is wrong with you? I was actually yeah. having that talk with my daughters this afternoon because they're talking about, you know, I was like, why when I do something, it's weird. Like, if, if your mom and I 
do something different. Why am I the weird one? And they're like, well, and one of my dogs is like, maybe we're all weird. And I said, no, you guys are weird. I'm messed up. And, they, and I said, there's a difference. Do you know <laughs> yes, totally different. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, no. And I was like, well, when you do something, people are like, God, that's weird. When I do something, people go, oh, God, that's messed up. <laughs> that's a <laughs> Yeah. So. Yeah, my uh, my youngest brother, uh, the middle kid in the family, uh, him all the time, he just looks at me, how the hell are you 43 years old? Because <laughs> I make those jokes. He's like, what is, how are you 43? Why are you not seven? <laughs> well, there's physical age and there's maturity age. And they're right. different. Yeah, and I'm I'm here and here with those two. <laughs> yeah. My wife says we've got to, when Dust and I are together, to used to be divide our age in half as we're getting older. Now it's by three. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, you know, I'm 43, and I don't think there's any anything funnier than than wiener and fart jokes. It's okay. You're not wrong, man. No, yeah, I yeah. definitely. I definitely then you add that that dark military humor in there. Yeah, I I have it's to police myself. My uh, you know, I hang out with a bunch of cops and you know a bunch of former military you know friends from law enforcement. And my wife's an accountant, so I have I have to remember that when we're around her work colleagues. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, hey, keep it down tonight. Yeah, yeah, I just. I have to watch it. They do not find things funny like we do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, my uh, my ex fiance was like that. We would go to places, and she's like, "Please don't say stuff like that because they're not going to take it the way you think they're going to take it." She's like, yeah, "Okay, fine." I mean, I would still say it because the hell with those people. They weren't my friends. They were her friends. What did I care? <laughs> my friends would think it was hilarious. Yeah, you're just, you're broadening their horizons. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to open them up to new things, and they just, they weren't receptive to it, so that's on them, not me. Yeah, you can lead a horse to water, right? <laughs> that, is, that is the beauty of America right there. <laughs> so. Hell yes, it is. Um, it's a, it's kind of the point where we like to open the floor uh, for anything that, that we haven't covered. You know, we've talked about advice to to fellow veterans, um, you know, anything maybe you think we haven't covered, whether it's advice to family members of, who of veterans or friends, like any advice you could give them, or open topic, if, if there's anything else you wanted to say. You got an NFL draft pick for me that I need to pay attention to for next year, or whatever you got, man. I do. I'm a Bengals fan, so I don't have any football advice at all. He's a Lions Bro, fan. I'm a Lions fan, and I'm right there with you. The oh. <laughs> Well, you feel it then, yeah. I don't think we're yeah. qualified to give football advice. No, no, absolutely not. I sent him a meme the other day. The Lions lost. Uh, I think, uh, <laughs> nice. Uh, my buddy out here, huge Lions fan, and his son is a Green Bay fan. And he tagged oh. the two of us on Facebook, and it was the Bermuda Triangle of football, and it was a triangle between. Detroit, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. <laughs> wow. He's not wrong. I mean, he's an asshole for doing it. Like, he should respect his elders. It's not wrong, he's not though. Wrong. It's not wrong. It's painful. It's painful. Yeah, it's no, just he... a teaching you. 
gives you character. Yeah. It's tough, man. It's tough. But you know what? The character is that you stuck with your team no matter how shitty they are. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I'm faithful. I mean, they're horrible, but I'm faithful. <laughs> the Mariners have given me 20 years. Sorry. I see baseball. I'm fine, man. I'm a Braves fan. I'm the only one in my uh, family not a Reds fan. My aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins, everybody, uh, siblings, they're all Reds fans. I'm the only Braves fan in the whole whole family. You picked so right baseball, there. I'm fine. Yeah, this year. This yeah. year I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, but now, like you're saying, if there any any open topic to, to friends, family, other vets, um, any anything, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, I mean, to the, to the other vets, go, go see somebody, um, talk to your family and friends. They notice the change in you before you do. You think you're hiding it, but you're not. Um, uh, I was lucky. I saw it sooner than other, other people do other vets. Um, yeah, you're not hiding it as well as you think that you are. Um, and, and the booze and the, I don't know if you're a smoker or whatever, or whoring around or whatever your vice is. You, you're not fixing anything by doing all that stuff. Um, and for friends and family, encourage people, uh, the vets in your family. It's, it's, I can't imagine how hard it is to approach um, for family and friends. Because my family, they don't, they've asked some questions. Um, and my answer in the very beginning was, uh, don't ask. Like if you, if you don't want to know the, don't ask if you don't want to know the actual answer. Um, my brothers know definitely more than my mom and dad and my sisters. Um, but even they don't know much about it. Um, they know that, that they need to support me. Um, my, my family is very close. So my, my siblings all know they need to support me. Um, but my brothers, they reach out about this stuff a lot. Uh, my, my one brother, Nick, he was in the, the air guard. So he had had some friends who had done some things too. And so he saw that. And then my, my baby sister, she was the same way. She was in the air guard in Ohio and she knew some people, um, who had been on actual deployments. Uh, I mean, like she went to Guam and Hawaii or something. So she didn't really, you know, she didn't deploy, but, some of those people did, and so they get it um, a little more than my other two siblings. But even my other two siblings who were, were not military get it because um, they saw that change in me too. And so if you're friends and family of a vet, um, you don't even have to necessarily ask questions. Just say, hey, if you need to talk, you know I'm around. Um, we don't even have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about. Um, it definitely helps, um, but please encourage the vet in your life to go see counseling if they need to. Um, because, uh, man, if I had to guess, 70% of the vets are not going to without me pushing them. Because yeah, people still think that stigma is there, um, and it's not. It, it never should have been from Vietnam on. Um, I'm lucky being a vet of the wars that I was in because back in World War II, 
like there was no there was no mental counseling for that stuff i mean you had the added benefit of coming back on the ship for however the hell long it took to get back from europe to to the states and talk these things out with your buddy and then you know vietnam era you, you got on a plane and you came home and there was no talking to somebody um and now we have the added benefit of uh all this stuff is available to us way more than it's ever been to any other veteran uh, before our time so many resources out there so please take advantage of it family and friends encourage your veterans to take advantage of it um, they're not going to think that they need it a majority of the time but they probably do so yeah that's the advice try to try to push like gently push um, don't force it just gently push somebody to, to take advantage of what's out there for them well said and and you know, our advice that we always give to people that, that we've learned from, from doing the podcast and, and doing the movie. A lot of times I think people have the desire to want to help fix the problems and you don't need to do that. You don't need to find solutions. You just, just open your ears and listen. You know, that, that is the biggest yeah. help you can do. Just open your ears and listen. So Dustin. Tony, thank you so much for being here. There's no, there's no fixing it. There's easing it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I really appreciate you guys uh, having me on, and I really appreciate what you guys are doing. We talked, and man, I, I think it's great what you guys are doing. It's awesome. Uh, sorry if I rambled on throughout oh, no. the whole time. Once I get oh. to talking, man, I start to ramble, especially That's when I got a couple awesome. beers in me, and I think I'm like three deep. So. No, that's, I mean, that's exactly what we're here for is to hear. Yeah, I think it's awesome what you guys are doing. Thank you. It's, it's a labor. I I really appreciate it. You guys are doing a really cool thing. Thank you. And we love doing it. It's, it's, we love doing it. I mean, just doing the podcast every week, making the movie, like there are a lot worse things in the world you could be doing for your job. Uh, I worked for the government. I know. (laughs) So. uh, Absolutely true. Yep. Yep. So, (laughs) (laughs) but thank you for being on, Uh, you know, thank you to our audience uh, for joining us today. If you like what you heard and and as I always say, if you're still here right now, you must have Uh, tell your friends, tell your family, hit the like and subscribe button, uh, wherever you are listening to this podcast and um, go out and, and hear people's stories. You've been listening to the Know Their Story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right. Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life. Because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.